<coughs> the book of Jude and <laughs> start reading this evening from <coughs> verse 10 just to pick up the context of where we've been at Jude verse 10 says, but these, speaking about the apostates, of course, it says, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what thing they know naturally is brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. Well unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, Trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Let's just open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, once again for the opportunity to come round your word. Lord, I pray that this evening as we continue our study in the book of Jude, that, Lord, you would speak to each of our hearts through your word this evening. I pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom and guidance and understanding this evening as I preach. I pray, Lord, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, as we look at this uh, passage that's often avoided, Lord, we receive a blessing from it this evening, that you teach us from and instruct us through it, I pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Jude's focus, of course, so far has been um, all upon the danger that the apostates, the false teachers, pose to the true church, to us as believers. That's what he's been doing for the first 13 verses here. He's been speaking about these apostates. He spent an awful lot of time presenting to you and I the character of these men in various different ways. He spent time demonstrating clearly that God will deal with these ungodly apostates just like he has dealt with similar men in the past. And last time we looked at verses 12 and 13, and we saw there the five metaphors that he uses to describe their character. We saw that he describes them as hidden rocks, clouds without water, dead autumn trees, raging waves of the sea, and wandering stars. Now I'm not going to go back into each one of them, what they all mean, but that's what we looked at last time. We looked at those five metaphors. And now as Jude brings this section to a close, this section on apostates to a close, he undergirds his whole attack against these apostates, against these false teachers, with an appeal to prophecy. He shows clearly that their judgment is sealed, their judgment is prophetically established. And he does this by quoting a prophecy from Enoch in verse 14 and 15. And so this evening, I want us to examine this prophecy. I want us to look at the identity of the prophet, first of all. And then secondly, I want us to look at the message of the prophet. 
So first of all, this evening, the identity of the prophet. Let's look in verse 14. It says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. You know, here in verse 14, we have another of those wonderful verses in the book of Jude, which are strange. These verses which are abnormal compared to the rest of the Word of God in the sense they refer to things that we don't find anywhere else. You know, here Jude refers to a prophecy of Enoch. We read here at the start of verse 14, it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. You know, this is the only the second time in the whole of the New Testament that we find Enoch mentioned. The only other time we see Enoch is in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's just turn over there quickly. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. We read, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Through translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So here in Hebrews 11, of course, that we have the faith chapter and we have all these godly men listed, these men of faith. And here the writer of Hebrews includes Enoch as an example of faith. You know, his faith, of course, was clearly demonstrated by the fact that he walked so close with God that one day God took him home. God took him home to glory. He was translated to heaven before his death. Now, the writer in Hebrews, of course, here is quoting or referring to Genesis chapter 5. Let's just turn back to Genesis 5, if we would. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, And Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked before God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 300, uh, 360 and five years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so the writer in Hebrews is referring to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24 here, where it says that he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so the writer in Hebrews is referring to something that is common knowledge, something that you and I know about from the Old Testaments. The difference when we come to Jude and verse 14 is that Jude refers to something that's not found anywhere else. Jude gives us information that we do not find anywhere else in the Word of God. Now Jude identifies Enoch here as being a prophet and he indeed quotes the words of Enoch. He quotes Enoch's prophecy. But we're not told this anywhere else in God's Word. You know, Jude is careful, first of all, as we look at this man, he's careful to make us understand which Enoch he's talking about. You notice there in verse 14, he says, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam. He makes sure that we understand that he's talking about the one who is the seventh after Adam, okay, the seventh generation. And he does this because Cain also had a son named Enoch. Go to Genesis chapter 4 just quickly. I know we're flipping around a little bit, but it's all right. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 17. <clears throat> it says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he built the city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so we have Cain's son, Enoch. And so to make sure that we distinguish here, make sure that Jude is distinguishing which Enoch he's talking about, 
he says the seventh from Adam. He's making sure we understand that it's the godly one, the one you and I know. Okay, now we automatically assume it is, but there is two Enochs mentioned in Genesis. And so by stating he's the seventh from, seventh from Adam, Jude is identifying clearly that he's talking about the godly man, the man who is taken, the man who is translated to glory, the man we all know well from Genesis chapter 5. And Jude tells us here that this man Enoch was a prophet. You know, we're not told this anywhere else in the Word of God. We're not told anywhere else in the Word of God clearly um, that Enoch is a prophet. In a sense, this is new information for us. This is new information. It makes, you know, it makes sense considering how godly he was, considering that this man walked so close with the Lord that God took him home to glory. It makes sense that he was a prophet. It makes sense that God would reveal secrets under him, reveal the future under him. But we're not told this anywhere else. Indeed, the only indication that we have anywhere else in the Word of God that Enoch is a prophet or any indication of his prophetic ministry is in the son of his, uh, sorry, in the name of his son, Methuselah. In Genesis chapter 5, which we just read, verse 21, it says that he called his name, his son, sorry, Methuselah. The name Methuselah literally means when he is dead, it shall be sent. And so the indication seems to be there that Enoch prophetically named his son Methuselah because he knew that the judgment by the flood was coming. You see, when he is dead, the flood shall be sent. And so it seems that he, you know, prophetically named his son Methuselah. And indeed, according to Bible chronology, if you work it out, Methuselah died in the year of the flood. Indeed, according to Jewish tradition, they state that he died seven days before the flood began. And so Methuselah died at least in the year of the flood. And so we seem to get an indication of his ministry. We get to seem to get an indication that he was a prophet. But nowhere else in the word of God do we find the words of Enoch recorded for us. Nowhere else do we find his prophecies recorded for us except here in Jude verse 14. And so, of course, that leads you and I to the inevitable question, where does Jude get his information from? Where is Jude quoting from? He's, he seems to just state it as if we should know. Where is he getting this from? As I said earlier, this is not the first time Jude has done this to us. He did this also in verse 9. If we go back to verse 9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now, as we saw in verse 9, he refers to this contention between Michael the archangel and the devil, which again, we're not told of anywhere else in the word of God. It's not referred to anywhere else. And as we saw when we looked at that verse, we saw that you know Jude is either referring to oral tradition, something was passed down, from generation to generation, or he is quoting an apocryphal book, a book that's not inspired. Okay, there's the books of Apocrypha. And the particular book is called The Assumption of Moses. Okay, and it seems to be that he quotes from that book in verse 9. You know, at the time when we looked at verse 9, we said that either way, by stating it in Scripture, all he is doing is confirming that that is true, that one bit is true. 
verse 9 is true. That's all he's confirming. He's not confirming the whole of the book of the Assumption of Moses to be inspired. And the same is true here as Jude now quotes in verse 14, seemingly again from an apocryphal book. He quotes this time from the book of Enoch. Now the book of Enoch is a collection of writings written by various different writers. And it was written during the last two centuries BC. And so it was not written by Enoch. It was not written way back then. It's written the last two centuries BC. And they were compiled together into one book in the first century BC. And it contains 108 chapters. It has five divisions or five books within it. So it's a fairly large book or series of books, I should say. You know, most of it is fanciful or legendary material. Most of it's myths. And some of it is quite ridiculous from what I read this week. But the prophecy that Jude refers to here in verse 14 is found with some little variations in Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. Basically, word for word. It's found their book of Enoch. And so it seems to be pretty clear, pretty obvious, that Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch. You know, let's be clear of something here. The book of Enoch is not an inspired work of God. The book of Enoch should not be in the word of God. It does not belong in the scriptures. And the fact that Jude seems to quote from it a prophecy concerning Enoch does not mean that God has given his seal of approval to the whole book of Enoch. It simply means that that one verse is correct. That one verse has truth. That's all it means. It's not adding the seal of God to the whole book. You know, Paul quotes from the Greek prophet, uh, Greek poets in Acts chapter 17. Just turn over there. Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our own being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. He says there in verse 28, As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. You know, the Apostle Paul here quotes the Greek poets. But no one here this evening, I'm sure, would try to argue that therefore all of those, all the writings of those poets are inspired. That everything that those poets wrote has the seal of God upon it, and we should include it in the writings of the Holy Scriptures. No one here would argue that this evening. It would be laughable. We would laugh at that. I think that's amusing. I think that's stupid to claim such a thing. The same is true here in Jude verse 14. Just because Jude refers to something which is found in the book of Enoch does not give the seal of approval of God to the whole book. does not mean that everything that is written therein is inspired or indeed that any of it's inspired it just means that that one verse has truth in it that's all it means it simply means that under the leadership and the illumination of the holy spirits jude was led to understand that this prophecy by enoch was true and so he records it for us that's all it means jude was led by the spirit to know that this is true 
And so, you know, we have recorded for you and I here in verse 14, <clears throat> what then becomes a very remarkable verse. Because what we have recorded for us here is the most ancient announcement of future events known to have been uttered by man. Consider that. These are the words of Enoch. The words of Enoch, the seventh from Adam who lived before the flood. And God here is revealing to him future events. The prophet here is Enoch. And that makes these words incredible. Makes an incredible truth to know that right back there before the flood, Enoch saw this vision saw this prophecy and gives it unto us here in the book of Jude. And so we've seen that the, the prophet is indeed Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Now let's look secondly at the message of the prophet, the message of the prophet. Look again in verse 14. <clears throat> it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know, having, having considered the identity of the prophet, seeing that it is Enoch, let us now consider the content of his message. And it's broken into two parts. The first part we see here is the manner of the Lord's return. The manner of the Lord's return. You know, he says here at the start of verse 14, he says, And Enoch also the same from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh. Behold, the Lord cometh. He talks here about the manner of our Lord's return. You know, the word cometh here is in the aorist tense. And so if we were to translate it literally, it would read, Behold, the Lord came. Behold, the Lord came. You see, the point is that Enoch, like many of the prophets, as he catches a glimpse of future events, he catches a glimpse of this vision, he sees it as if it has already taken place. He sees it as if the events have already unfolded. His use of the aorist tense underlines the certainty of the, the event described. It underlines the fact that this will happen. This is guaranteed. This is certain. It cannot be avoided. It's as good as already being accomplished. Now he goes on to say that the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints. See, not only is the Lord's return to this earth in judgment one day, a certain events, but Enoch prophesies that when he comes, he will not be alone. When the Lord comes back again at the second coming, he will not be alone, but rather he will return, it says, amid thousands of his saints. Now the term ten thousands here means it speaks of an innumerable multitude. That's what it means. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it's translated that way. Turn over there. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, verse 22 it says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Innumerable. That's what he's talking about here when he says ten thousands of his saints. It's an innumerable host. A host without number. And he says that the Lord is coming and this host is following. The Lord is coming in all of his glory. In all of his majesty is leading this great host from heaven. So the question is, who are 
this innumerable host? Who are these ten thousands of saints? Well, the term that's translated saints here literally means the holy ones. The holy ones. And it can be used to speak about the angels of the Lord. And indeed, we know from other passages in the Word of God that the angels will be part of this host. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25 and verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. It says all the holy angels. The holy angels, that word holy there is the same word. It's talking about the angels coming with him. When he returns, the angels will be part of this heavenly host. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 tells us the same thing. It speaks about the fact that the angels will be with him. They will be part of this mighty host that is following him from glory. You know, this word can also be used to refer to the saints, as it is translated here in Jude, verse 14. To the saints. In other words, all saved believers. That's what it's talking about. You and I, we are the saints. And it's clear from Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, that the saints will return with the Lord to the earth. Let's turn over there, Revelation 19. Revelation 19 verse 14 says, The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. talks about the armies who follow him clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And I believe it's talking about the saints there. And I believe that because in in chapter 20, um, we are there. It talks about the fact that you and I are going to reign with him for a thousand years. We've come back. We're with him. And so we are part of this heavenly host that returns. And there is indeed other passages which talk about the saints returning with him. And so this heavenly host, this great host that follows the Lord, these ten thousands of his saints is a multitude of angels and saints. It's a mixture. And indeed you and I will be part of that host. Because you and I will already have been raptured. We will have been in glory for seven years of tribulation. We'll be there while the tribulation takes place on earth. And then we will return as part of this heavenly host, as part of this innumerable host of saints. You see, Enoch, right back at the beginning of God's revelation to man, sees basically the exact same vision as John at the end of God's revelation to man. Think about that. He sees basically the same vision. He sees the Lord coming with his host. The saints. You know, we are part of that because we are the saints. You know, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior, then we will be there as Christ comes back one day. We will be there as He returns to earth in judgments. We will be part of this innumerable host. And you know, this has always been part of God's plan. Isn't that incredible? Enoch, before the flood, prophesied about this event, and it's still yet future. John prophesied of this event, and it's still yet future. It's always been God's plan. It hasn't changed. From the very beginning, this was God's plan, that he would come back one day. The Lord would return in judgment upon the earth. And so we see the manner of the Lord's return, and now we see the reason for the Lord's return. The manner of the Lord's return, now the reason for the Lord's return. Look in verse 15. 
It says to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see, Enoch's prophecy goes on to describe for us not only the manner of the Lord's return, his glorious return from heaven, but also now the reason for his return. <coughs> Excuse me. Why it is that he is coming back. See, he begins verse 15 by saying, to execute judgments upon all. That's why Christ is coming back again. His second coming will all be about judgments. To execute judgment upon all the ungodly. You see, none shall escape his judgment. None shall escape on that day the judgment of the Lord. Just as the flood destroyed all those who were outside the ark, all the ungodly were destroyed. In that day as Christ comes again, all the ungodly will be judged. None will escape. You know, the word ungodly here appears four times in this verse. It pretty much stresses for you and I the purpose, doesn't it? The purpose of the Lord's second coming is clear, is to deal with the wicked, to deal with the ungodly. You know, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 describes it as a day of judgment and perdition. 2 Peter 3, <clears throat> verse 7 says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's a day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly. You know, when the Lord came the first time, He came to bring salvation unto all. That's why He came, to provide salvation for you and I, provide salvation for all mankind. But when he comes the second time to earth, it will be in judgment. It will be to bring judgment upon all who have rejected him. Not only does Enoch make here clear that Christ's coming is to execute judgment, but you know, we also see here that his judgment will be completely fair and just. You see, he says in verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He says that he not only comes to execute judgment, but to convince. The word convince there means to convict. In other words, all the ungodly on that day will be convicted of their sin. They will be found guilty. They will be tried and found guilty of their sin. You see, the law will have record of their ungodly deeds, as Jude tells us, as Enoch's prophecy, I should say, tells us here in verse 15, where he says that he will convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds. You see, the law will know all that they have done. He will have record of their ungodly deeds, a record of their motives, a record of their hidden desires. And he will judge according to those desires according to their deeds. You see, the point is that the law will establish beyond their guilt. Their guilt will be plain, it will be sure. Their own works will accuse them. And judgment will be passed accordingly. You know, there will be no grounds for appeal against the decision of the judge. His decision will be final and it will be completely fair and just. 
You know, Matthew chapter 25 describes for you and I the judgment and conviction of men who are living on the earth at the time of the Lord's return. Let's turn over there. <clears throat> Matthew 25. <clears throat> Let's just read this passage from verse 31. <clears throat> it says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. And ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we, and hung, we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto, also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was and hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now here in Matthew 25, it describes the judgment and the conviction of men living on the earth at the time of the Lord's return. You see, the sentence is passed here upon the ungodly nations, the goat nations. In verse 41, the sentence is clear. It says, Then shall he say unto them, on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. See, the ungodly will be convicted and they will be judged and they will be cast into everlasting fire, that place of torment that was meant for the devil and his angels. You see, this, this will be the sentence in that day. This will be the sentence upon the ungodly. None shall escape. Likewise, Revelation chapter 20 describes the great white throne judgment. Turn over there. Revelation 20. <clears throat> From verse 11. It says, And I saw the great, a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the, in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in a lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know, Revelation 20 here describes the scene at the end of the thousand year reign. The scene is all the dead, the ungodly dead, stand before God at the great white throne judgments. 
and the books will be opened and the dead will be judged according to what is written therein. It says according to their works. You see, the evidence will be clear. The evidence will be there before the Lord God Almighty. Nothing is hidden. And His judgment on that day will be completely fair and just. No one will be able to argue with God and say it's not fair. Judgment will be fair and they will be condemned to the lake of fire for all eternity. You see, this prophecy here by Enoch is a glorious glimpse for you and I at the return of our Lord, the second coming. He's coming back at the end of the tribulation. And you know, it perfectly fits with the rest of God's word. It perfectly fits. As I said earlier, it's like Enoch sees the exact same vision as John. Because God's plan hasn't changed from the beginning of God's revelation right through the end of God's revelation. God has not changed his purpose. God has not changed his purpose for mankind. He is in control and the world is rushing headlong towards that day. Headlong towards the day of his return and judgment upon mankind. You know, Jude includes this prophecy here because, it is the, because the apostates that he has been addressing are part of the ungodly that God will judge. That's why he includes this prophecy here. He's pointing out that these apostates, these ungodly men, these unsaved teachers as we've seen, these men are part of the ungodly that God will judge, that God will deal with. You see, the Lord indeed knows and he sees all that these ungodly teachers are doing even today. He sees the damage that they are doing. He sees the men that they are leading to hell. He sees what they are accomplishing. God is well aware of it and the day is coming when God will judge them for their sin. They will not escape the judgment of the Lord. See, the Lord knows that they have turned His grace into an excuse for sin, as we saw in verse 4. God knows about their lack of respect for authority, lack of respect for Him, as we saw in verse 10. God knows that they have followed in the sins of Cain, the sins of Balaam and of Korah, as we saw in verse 11. God indeed knows, as it says in verse 16, that they are murmurers, complaining, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words. The Lord knows what these men are like. It's not hidden from the Lord. And as Enoch says, God is well aware of that and God will use that to judge them on that day. He will convince them and convince them of their ungodly works, of their sin. You see, God has seen it all. None of the works of the apostates has gone unnoticed. And God wishes them accordingly. They will stand before God and they will give an account of what they have done. They will be convicted of their deeds of their blasphemous words which they have spoken against him. In that day, their works will testify against them. Their works will condemn them. And they will be convicted and receive the just reward. Now, as I considered that, I thought about the fact that, you know, at times we look around at the world and we wonder how long, don't we? We wonder how long shall the Lord try Wait, how long shall the wicked triumph? Just turn over to Psalm 93. Because I think the psalmist expresses it well. Psalm 93, or 94, I should say. (coughs) 
Now, Psalm 94 and verse 3, it says, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. Now, the psalmist cries out pretty much exactly what we at times cried out, cry out. How long, Lord, shall the wicked triumph? You know, as we look around at the world and we look at the damage the apostates are doing, as we look at what the ungodly are doing, at times we are tempted to say the exact same thing. Lord, how long will you allow these things to go on? Our world is getting worse, not better. You know, the fact of the matter is that God is in complete control. As we saw from the beginning of time, this has been God's plan. From Enoch, the seventh from Adam, right through to John and his revelation, God has not changed his plan. Christ is still coming again. And God will send Christ in his timing according to his purpose, according to his plan, and he will execute judgment upon this earth. He will, in his timing, deal with the wicked. He will deal with the apostates who have entered into the church. But you know, until that day, you know, we must not despair. We must not despair as believers. We must not become discouraged as believers, but rather keep pressing on for him. Keep pressing on. As Titus 2 verse 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is coming again. He's coming again. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the words of Enoch's prophecy here this evening. These words, Lord, which fit so perfectly with the revelation of John. Lord, point out so clearly the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, coming in judgment upon this earth. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we will be part of that heavenly host. We will already be raptured in heaven when this takes place. But Lord, indeed, we look forward to that day. We long for that day, Lord, when you will come again. Lord, help us until that day to remain faithful, to keep looking up, keep trusting in you, and knowing that you are in control. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.